Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This shows a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Daniel Baum. Daniel Baum is the co-founder of Sleek. Sleek saves you time and money when shopping online. Check out with just one click at Best Buy, Zara, Gap, and all your favorite stores. Plus, earn cash back on top of your credit card rewards. In this episode, we discuss Daniel's Y Combinator experience, the checkout landscape, and the future of Sleek. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Baum. Daniel, I'd really want to start with your background in law and also your experience at Hey Avery and and how that kind of shaped you as a founder and ultimately leading to starting Sleek. Yeah, sure. I was at Queen's University and I was doing a a dual degree in business and law. So it was a six-year basically undergraduate and graduate degree together. And I always loved startups. I always thought there was definitely an opportunity within startups and the law was an interesting path for me. And I, I definitely thought there was a lot of value when you look at startups and you look at law. So you think about Airbnb and Uber, they revolutionized an industry, but really by figuring out a way to just be slightly outside the law. So hotels were a thing and obviously Airbnbs are just, they're not quite hotels, but they're found like a bit of a loophole and that's kind of the same with Uber. So it, it, I thought those really interesting ways to analyze business situations. And again, with a bit of a legal lens, I thought that'd be uh, a little bit easier. So that's, that was a lot of my thinking going to law. I thought it was a really good skill. I thought it would allow me to look at businesses a different way and look at situations a different way, which I think it did. So I was really happy to do law and, you know, always during my undergraduate studies during the summers, I'd be doing a lot of startup work, working with different startups. So I always felt pretty passionate about joining startups and Hey Avery was something that my current co-founders and I started working on when, when the Me Too movement was happening. It seemed like there was really a lot of issues within workplaces and the people really did not feel secure in their workplace. They did not feel empowered to speak up. So we kept, definitely thought there was an opportunity there to try to address some change. And we worked on that for a little while. We actually got into Y Combinator with that. And it became relatively obvious as we progressed through the experience of hey, it wasn't really something we were that well suited to do. We weren't insiders. We didn't understand the world of HR well enough to be able to, to make an impact. And so we decided to shift our focus to sleep. And you bring up an interesting point there with being an expert in the space, not really being an expert in that HR space and then moving over to sleek. Did you feel like you had a bit more expertise or understanding in that space? What ultimately made that shift over? Yeah, we thought we had a lot more expertise here. Sleek being a browser extension, one of my co-founders, Palmer McCutcheon, he's our CTO. He had worked in at Microsoft in Seattle on the Edge browser team. So he obviously had a really deep understanding of the inner workings of the browser. And there aren't that many people that have that knowledge. So clearly from just a knowledge point of view, that was hugely helpful. And my other co-founder, Adam McEachern, he had worked at Kearney as a consultant and he'd done a lot of consulting for your top 50, top 100 type companies on their e-com stack and understanding the intricacies of, you know, how their e-com teams work, 
and, and really how antiquated their systems are. So a lot of experience there. And I had personally worked at two different fintechs during my summit. And again, when I was working as a lawyer, I had a decent amount of experience at private and public fundraising for startups and especially with some fintechs. So for us, it really was a space that more fit our skills and ultimately was something we still felt really passionate about. So it was a pretty natural move. And so you entered Y Combinator with Hey Avery? That's correct. So you entered Y Combinator as a Canadian with Hey Avery. Was this during COVID? Was it remote? Did you go down to the Bay Area? Yeah, so it was summer 2021. So it actually was a remote batch. At that point, some folks were still meeting up in person. There was some social interaction available. And I lived in Toronto. My co-founder, Adam, lived in Guelph. And my other co-founder, Palmer, was in Vancouver. So we were all doing it remotely anyway. So we felt it actually provided an opportunity and maybe gave us an advantage if we would get together and do it together. So we all went down to San Francisco. We went down June 14th and were there until I think September 13th. So it was almost a, a full three months or so and had a really awesome time. Just really learned so much about our, ourselves and about our business. And I think... Looking back, had we not have gone down and done this together, I don't know that we'd be in the same place we are today. I think there was really a lot of bonding and a lot of value. They were bouncing ideas off of each other at 12 at night and then waking up at 7.30 in the morning and making breakfast together and bouncing more ideas off each other. So it just, it was never ending. And I think that is really, that type of culture really allowed us to build something we think is going to be pretty amazing. And when you look back on that Y Combinator experience, obviously opening it up for more than just Bay Area companies, we're seeing more and more Canadians going down. How was that experience for you? Do, you? do you think it made a huge difference in the business? Obviously, you had a pivot while being down there. What are some key highlights or, or some things that you would recommend about Y Combinator as a Canadian founder? Yeah, I think whether you're a Canadian founder or founder anywhere, I think you have to recognize that Y Combinator has some of the brightest and most experienced partners and advisors you could possibly find, right? So everybody gets, you're in a group of maybe five to 10 other companies, and then there's three partners who advise the 10 companies particularly. And, and these partners have seen everything. They have seen every possible idea, every possible iteration. They've, it's a lot of pat, like a pattern matching and really giving the best advice based on their experience. So I think as any founder, that is hugely helpful. Now, as a Canadian founder in particular, I think it opens up your eyes a little bit and your world a bit to the, to the potential, right? So I think in Canada, we don't typically think quite as large as the Americans do. We don't think about hitting the same type of home runs. We don't have the same access to capital necessarily. So I think getting down to the States and not just, again, not just speaking with venture like VCs and, and people involved in the world, but also speaking with fellow founders. And like you're speaking with founders who are trying to start spaceship companies and trying to do mobile housing and do really outrageously cool things. And that's really important as an individual to try, especially as a Canadian, where we don't always think that grand and that large. And I think being down there really opens up your eyes and, and you think about it in a bit of a different way. And how did that kind of grand thinking affect you when you went down there? Did you already have that mindset and just further unlocked it? And, and how did that ultimately help maybe this pivot to sleek? Yeah, it's a good question. I think personally, everybody believes, or I hope that everyone believes they can do great things, but I think that you get bogged down in the realities of life sometimes. So instead of when you're making a decision, maybe you'll think about, oh, will this be good on my resume? Or what's the next step after this for me? And I think 
realizing that we're the best time to start saying is today. Don't put it off tomorrow what you can do today, especially if you love what you're doing or you're really ambitious about the project. So I think that reality set in a little bit before we got to Y Combinator. I think we started really being like we could like with Hey Avery, we could really make an amazing business that has real impact on people's lives. And that became really exciting. And that's a great reason to get up out of bed in the morning and stay at your computer late at night. So I think those were really motivating for us. Now, when you get down there, and again, you do speak to people with these really grand ambitions, I think it, it's inspiring, really. Like it, it makes you feel like, wow, people are trying to change the world and I'm glad to be included with these folks. And therefore I have somewhat of a responsibility as well to try to change the world. I think you need to have that entrepreneurial mindset to even begin a startup. But I think being surrounded with folks that have such a strong entrepreneurial mindset and such a strong desire to change things really helps it. And it is inspiring. And so you and your co-founders are down at Y Combinator in person. And now, as you mentioned, you're remote now. How has that shift been? Has there been challenges there or just the dynamic between the three of you just works well in a remote environment? Can you expand a bit on going from in-person, now remote, and how that's working for your team? Yeah, remote is it's an interesting beast, if you will. It's really its own thing. And we make a real effort as a team to still make sure we have these in-person things. So as an example, like Adam and I are both based out of Toronto. So we, we try to work in person when we can. Palmer and we have an employee named Lombard. He's also based in Vancouver right now. So we have an office space that they work at. And I just got back from Vancouver two days ago. We go basically for two weeks every few months, Adam and I will go. So we're always together. So we probably spend around 25% of our time actually working together. So at least we do have this still like ongoing relationship because working remote, you can get maybe more done productively on an individual level, but there are certain synergies that can't be recreated in these virtual times and I, or like remote times. And I think there is a lot of value to being in person. So we do try to balance that. And Adam last year, I think he went down for a few months at a time. So we definitely do try to balance that. We do try to spill have these in-person really, again, we're friends. So as much as we're co-founders and, and we have employees, we're all friends. And I think that really matters. And ultimately, like I going to Vancouver is visiting my friends. The fact that we get to work on something that we're passionate about, that's icing on the cake. And, and will you in intentionally design those times when you are a bit more solo remote, you'll be doing more you know, tasks that you need to accomplish on a solo basis and you'll have more kind of productive, maybe idea generation when you're together. Will you break up that time? We make an effort to, we definitely have a couple serious discussions when we're down there about strategy, about, you know, what are the next few months have in store, maybe the next six weeks or two months till we're back here. We definitely try to have those discussions for sure. At the same time, we don't come in like a bowl in a china shop and really disrupt the flow of what's happening on their side. So it is still doing your own solo things, but doing your own solo things with someone right next to you, it's a lot easier to just ask them a question or interrupt their flow. So the thing is, it can be disruptive, but ultimately the synergy you get from doing it together is a, is a serious plus. And I, I guess maybe describe describing a little bit about that transition to Sleek. What problem did you uncover and what solution have you built out to date so far? Yeah, it's, it's well put. I think a lot of the thing was we were finding is we were talking to folks who everybody was using their browser for everything in their life. So that included working from home, that included watching Netflix, that included all their financial you know operations, so to speak. So 
people were doing their banking, everyone's doing stock trading, everyone's doing their purchases, everything was happening on the browser. And that didn't really make a ton of sense because browsers aren't designed to do absolutely everything. Like you don't do your work, you wouldn't do everything in the same tool. So that seemed a little strange to us. So we started thinking about how can we add financial rails to the browser? And we talked to a lot of folks. They said a browser extension is something I feel comfortable with. People really love Chrome and a lot of folks don't want to move off that. It's very high like energy that gets someone to move off that to actually to a new browser. And browser extensions have lower energy and everybody felt this pain. But checkouts are like, why am I putting all this information into every single checkout I do? It doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. So that's where we decided to start and, and press on. We looked into it a little deeper and why do you have to put all this information in, right? Like why does it work this way? And the reality is because every website's designing their own checkout flow and that creates a, a big problem on the front end when you're seeing it, it's asking you the same questions, but on the back end, it's completely different at almost every store. And for someone to come in and change that checkout, they need to embed something into a website, right? So if you're Walmart, you need to allow something to be embedded to enable a more seamless checkout experience. But Walmart doesn't really want to embed something. They have a whole team managing their e-com stack. And what's the odds that the same company that might get Walmart to embed something is also going to have Apple embed something or Macy's embed something. Well, it's pretty unlikely. And the problem then it's a distribution challenge. Like there are other one-click checkout providers out there, but they're not working at many of the top stores or they're not working at all your favorite stores. So. And if you can buy, you like store number one, but store number two doesn't have the checkout solution. I could have just made a profile store number one, if that's all it was, right? It's not built for consumers, these tools. So we really want to make a consumer focus on this checkout solution. And with Sleek, we don't embed anything. That's what's so unbelievable about the tech we're building. We don't require Walmart to embed anything. We don't require Best Buy to embed anything. We can facilitate seamless checkout for Evan without being embedded on the store. And that's really the critical thing about sleep. That That's very interesting. Yeah. Cause with, with the space with fast, that ultimately is wound down bolt stripe shop pay. I guess if you do look at those services, they are definitely tailored more towards the merchant and not so much the user and built into the browser is, is an extremely interesting concept. So do you, do you see it as almost going after a completely different market? Like you're not really going after the merchant and you're trying to get more uptake from a consumer standpoint? I think it's interesting. We partner with merchants, but then we also, you know, serve consumers. That's how I put it. So we have over 1500 merchants that we rate partner with today who really want the seamless checkout experience to be offered at their website. Don't want to actually embed the technology right now to make it happen because of the lift required because of you know the compliance required. There's a multitude of reasons why they don't really want to do that today. So for us, we don't require that. We just require a simple partnership with them where we say, we're going to help consumers check out at your sites. And, and I do think then ultimately they're excited by that. We can increase card conversion. We're going to make it a way better experience for shoppers, but then our, on us, we have to go get those shoppers. We need to go get those consumers onto sleek. So it's almost a marketplace, if you will, although it's, it's not quite your traditional marketplace, but you could view it as a bit of that. But yeah, I think that consumer focus is really something that separates us, but also something that we think is a real strength because ultimately, like all these services, it is connecting a consumer with a retailer. But if consumers aren't going to have that right experience, they're not going to love your product. So you can get a, a sizable amount of people who use saying, but don't truly love it. We want, you know, people to really love Sleek, to really be retaining on Sleek and to think like, 
I, why would I check out with any other tool if this is obviously the best tool to check out with? And that's, that's what people, we want to fall in love with that experience, right? Think about it for yourself. Can you really imagine a world where in five or 10 years, you're still inputting your information to every guest checkout? Like that doesn't seem to make sense. That's such like a, a thing that the future shouldn't hold. And we want to make sure it doesn't. And attacking the browser, I, I think, is an interesting standpoint. From a consumer uh, standpoint and gaining users, what are some strategies that have been working for you so far? Like, obviously, you know, shop pay is quite a beast in the space. And anytime I'm on a, shop, I'm on a Shopify website, the shop pay is there. And click of a button, they send me a text, the code pulls up. Where, where do you see... Shop pay is winning because they own the Shopify merchants. Where do you see a sleek winning? Is that in a different space? Is that competing with Shop Pay? It's a good question. I wouldn't really say we're competing. I think we're, you know, in a similar market, but I don't see the direct competition. When I think about something like Shop Pay, Shop Pay is a wonderful experience. I think anybody who's used it thinks it's almost even too quick. Like sometimes it makes the checkout really fly by and really seamless. At the same time, it's only available on Shopify sites which is really terrific. If you look at the top 500 stores or top 100 stores that are on online shopping, how many that are on Shopify? And it's a lot of these huge retailers, they make their own custom e-com stack. They don't have it on a Shopify or a Magenta or a BigCommerce or someone like that. They have it in-house and they're running it themselves. So for users, it, it really, if you want this type of checkout experience, you can't get it everywhere. And that's the difference between Sleek and any of these other offerings is we are actually able to facilitate this checkout at all the stores without embedding the technology. So it's a lot easier for us to partner with. We have some of your, we work with some of those top Shopify stores, right? Like we work with Forever 21, we work with some other great ones, but then on the flip side, we also serve Canadian Tire and Sportcheck and Best Buy and Walmart. And again, these are stores that are really large that have their own custom e-com stack and we're able to provide this really seamless experience at more of the places. And, and when you think about generally e-com spend, it is really aggregated and really clustered in these top retailers. So not being able to transact there with seamless payment is a big pain point. So for us, ShopPay is a really cool tool. There's no denying that it's a great experience, but we, as a consumer, it is only a great experience if you can do it everywhere. Otherwise it's limited and you go shop somewhere else and you're like, yeah, I wish I could pay like I do at Shop. That's a great experience. I wish I could have this everywhere. And, Thankfully, that's what Sleek's going to be able to provide. And from a merchant standpoint, like what's that integration time look like? Is it like an easy just flick of a switch? Hey, you can accept Sleek as a payment flow. Is, it, is there a deeper integration of the, the technology stack there? Is that a bit more challenging on your end, but it's super easy for the merchant and the customer? How does that look? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's really easy for the merchant and the customer. We want to be seamless, not only seamless payment, but seamless onboarding, seamless distribution, really just making a seamless process for everybody involved, except for us. We're building some unbelievable tech in-house and that's what enables us to be so seamless. But yes, it's a, you just make an agreement with us as a merchant and we literally take care of all the rest, like the, all the tech stuff. We don't ask anything of the merchant. And then from a consumer standpoint, like what are ways that you're acquiring users right now? I'm assuming since you are a browser extension, it's easy to download, it's easy to try. So once you do get some eyes on a landing page, I'm assuming the conversion can be quite easier. So how does that look like right now? Getting users, onboarding them and like falling in love with Sleek. 
Yeah, no, you're right. We do have actual like pretty good conversion numbers we're finding right now. At the same time, checkout is a busy space. And these extensions, they are large. They have millions of users. People know the names, Honey, Rakuten, Ebates, Lolly, these names, and, and they do create a lot of noise. So finding our place in there is not always the easiest, but what we're really trying to do is we're focusing on talking to users and understanding why people like Sleek, what attracts them to Sleek, what maybe they don't like about Sleek. I spoke to someone yesterday in Orlando, Florida, whose car had just broken down and we were talking about Sleek when she was on the side of the road, trying to understand why she liked it, why she didn't like it, things she liked about other extensions she tried, what she loves about cashback offerings, you know, how to, how to gamify these systems. So for us, really, as much as a go-to-market is very important, listening to our consumers that we have, the early adopters that we have, and trying to understand what draws them into sleep, what gets them excited about sleep, and where they want it to go, that's really going to lead our development because we have a million hypotheses, but of course, the consumer is always right, and, and they're going to tell us what's the best direction for our business. And how do you like maintain that feedback loop? Because I, I do start to see this as I'm doing more and more of these interviews. I find the companies that are accelerating and growing are ultimately listening to their consumer and their potential customers a lot. But how do you do that? Do you set time aside for that? And how do you really gather that customer feedback and build a better product? Yeah, that's a, a classic YCism. Build code, talk to customers. That's the job. That's your job, right? That's what should lead your development. That's what should lead the, the whole product. So if that, I don't code. So if my number one most important thing is talking to customers, I better be doing it. So again, it's about if you can find an hour or two to talk to five or 10 customers, that is a great use of time. We have you know spreadsheets where we record notes. We put it all in. Everybody can access it. Everybody can review that. And it's just about looking back in your calendar at the end of the week and saying, okay, how many user interviews did I talk to? How many people did I talk to this week? If you only spoke to two or three, maybe that's not enough. Like, I, I think if you had a week where you spoke to a hundred people somehow, but you didn't really do anything else, I think that's probably a pretty good one. A lot of the other nuances of our business that I, I have to look out for, I'm in charge of a lot of the legal stuff or a lot of the financial stuff, but like that stuff usually can wait a day or two. Like hearing advice from customers, if a customer is going to meet you and take time out of their day to tell you about your product, drop everything and make that happen for them. And, and how do you measure that feedback? Obviously, the old saying, the customer is always right is, is not always true. So how do you, you know, are you looking for things that they're not really saying, something subtle that they might not be mentioning? How are you gathering that feedback? Are you focusing more on high level feeling of using the product and maybe less so on like specific little features? How do you look at those interviews? Yeah, it's a tough skill, these discovery calls or these user interviews. It's something that we're constantly trying to get better on and iterate and we discuss in-house. How do we make this conversation better? What's a question to ask that really can open up some interesting dynamics? But really, it's about open-ended questions and about user behavior. So we're not going to say, did you like this part of the product? We might say, like, how do you like to shop online? Or what do you not like about shopping online? Don't like we, They might say something that has nothing to do with what Sleek is building. But if we hear that from every single person, okay, that's obviously something we need to add to the product, right? So we, we have our own vision and our own direction that we believe, but at the same time, we have to be completely open to hearing whatever a consumer might say. Again, build something people want is, is the key. So we might be building something we think is amazing. And if we're the only three people that love it, then that's okay, but that's, it could be a lot better. So let's, let's try to find out from 
the people out there from the early adopters what they like. So again, really trying to be open-ended and trying to learn, not trying to put your narrative on a conversation. If the sleek right now is only available on desktop, if somebody says to us, I do all my shopping on mobile, I'm not just going to hang up the phone. Okay. That's so interesting. Why do you do all your shopping on mobile? What do you like about shopping on mobile? Is it the convenience? Is that what's really driving you there? Maybe people have a big problem with checkout friction on mobile more so than desktop, which is something a lot of the stats would actually support. So these are different intricacies. We try to always find out. And then I guess, what would your thoughts be on the kind of browser versus uh, mobile experience there? Definitely your focus right now on the browser. How do you make that leap or that jump? Or, or are you not even focused on that at the moment? We're really focused on doing it for sure on the browser right now on desktop computers. But at the same time, we are like very aware of the stats that people are doing increasingly high transactions on their phone. Again, something we've discovered in these user interviews is a lot of folks are doing discovery of products on their phone, right? So they might be on Instagram or on TikTok on their phone. They see a product, they love a product. Wow, that's amazing. They may take out their computer now to actually execute the transaction. Or for instance, they may read about or see pictures of an amazing vacation someone's taken. You said you went to Hawaii, maybe somebody saw on their Insta, wow, what an awesome trip. But a lot of people don't actually book the flights on their phone. They might take out their computer now to actually book those flights because it's a bigger screen. They feel more comfortable. There's a, a multitude of reasons why someone might do that. So that's, that's an interesting learning we have where a lot of these bigger purchases may be happening on their computer. Now, we also do know that people are transacting on their phones. We do believe the Sleek's future will definitely have to have a mobile component. There's no denying that at this point. And it's just about how do we implement it? So Safari now allows browser extensions on your phone. Okay, that's an interesting edge case. For, you, for iPhone users, potentially there's a browser extension play there. For Chrome, they have yet to do it on mobile. So we have to see what's the, what are the options there? Do we build an app? So hopefully Chrome does come out with something that's an extension and maybe that's an easier transition. Do we do a super shopping app? It's something people always talk about. I don't know if that's necessarily the route we'll take. We don't necessarily have a solution yet for mobile. We've got a lot of ideas and we're going to see what comes to fruition. And, and I think that's super interesting. Like, I think if you were doing those customer interviews, you would never found out. And, and now even I reflect on that and I could definitely see that. I feel like discovery on mobile happens more and then maybe I'm doing that kind of checkout through my desktop. So that is very interesting. Exactly. And I, I, I guess with browser extension being unlocked on mobile, like that's a new space and some growth potential there. You mentioned earlier with kind of gamification. So what does gamification look like for Sleek? How do you think, how do you view, how do you view, is it important to Sleek? Is it a game changer? How do you view gamification with a checkout experience? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's different ways to gamify any product, right? So just as like a really basic example with onboarding, we require you to basically do the last form you're ever gonna fill out. So you're filling out basically one final guest checkout in sleep, that's our onboarding process. We can incentivize you at different stages to continue down this onboarding funnel. That's a gamification in a way, right? To tell you, you're gonna get $5 if you onboard and this part you're redeeming a dollar, this part you're redeeming another dollar. So there's an interesting gamification strategy. Now within the actual checkout, right? Maybe if you use sleep a certain amount of times, you're gonna spin a wheel and be eligible to win a prize. Or maybe if you buy a certain amount of items, you can get like lottery tickets and then there'll be a big winner at the end of the month. Like these are all different ideas that we floated out there and, and we've definitely, again, we're considering, but before we do anything radical like that, we're talking to users. Like, does that excite you? If you make a per, if you're on your phone 
And we tell you, if you buy something on your computer, you may have a chance to be entered into a raffle or something. Does that have enough, like, does that create enough excitement to get you the energy to go get your computer? Some people say yes, some people say no. So we got to talk to more users on that. But I think gamification in, in any startup is important because ultimately nobody wants to use something that feels like a burden. If it feels like something fun and you're actually enjoying using it, then you're not like that energy to change your habits to include a product that's fun is really not that hard. It's the problem is if something feels like a chore, what's good for you, then you don't really do it. Like a great example is budgeting. A lot of people don't budget. Everybody knows they should budget. It's just like, it isn't sure. So how are you going to change your energy and change your behavior to do that? If somebody makes a really fun budgeting tool, I don't know how, but if they can do that, like all of a sudden, I think people might be more sensitive to budgeting. So fun is definitely a core aspect of everything we try to think about. And, and being fun, I think is very important. And I guess also uh, what would top of mind be really important. So let's say I'm on Chrome and visiting a bunch of different websites. I come to Canadian Tire. How, how will Sleek present itself? Will it pop up instantly that this is a Sleek merchant and I can do a checkout with Sleek? How do you look at that from as that's the gamification of like people are on their browser exploring the internet and they're stumbling upon, oh, this is a Sleek merchant and this experience could be a lot better for me. It's absolutely right. So somebody onboards to Sleek and then basically any store they go to the Wura partner, when they land on that page, a banner is going to pop up. It's going to say sleep checkout available here and get up to 5% cashback or get up to 15% cashback, whatever cashback deal we're offering at that store. So not only are we going to help you check out, we're also going to reward you in a way for using our checkout. We're going to make you, you know, bring a, bring a couple dollars home after your transaction that happens. And then when you get to other than that, we're not going to interact your flow. You're like interrupt your flow. It's going to be normal shopping. You're going to add items to your cart. You're going to go through, find what you like. When you get to the cart page, then Sleek's going to pop up again and say, do Sleek's one-click checkout here. You'll click that banner and we're going to take you through the whole checkout. So we're inputting your information. We're navigating through the page. We're clicking next. We're clicking continue. And then right at the end, we ask the user to select your shipping information and confirm the purchase. So it's once you're just going to make sure that we've selected a purchase, the, the shipping information that you're happy with. So it could be like the seven days or the rush shipping or whatever it is. We'll let the consumer make the final choice on that and confirm the purchase because we want to make sure that the user knows they have actually bought it at that point. So again, we do have that final check-in, but other than that, it's your basic shopping experience. You'll know that a sleek store is present right when you get to that website. And then right at the end, we just help you ultimately complete that purchase much, much easier. And from the discovery standpoint, like going through the internet, stumbling upon the merchants, that's exciting. There's a bit of a gamification, keeping it interesting. Would you be a marketplace or like a landing page that would have all the sleek merchants there? Or is, is that something that you're working towards? Yeah. So we have a web app and within our extension, we have a list of all our merchants. We have some featured, we have some deals. So yes, you can see that in the future, we do plan to even expand. Ideally, like again, something we talk about is shopping can be difficult. You don't always, sometimes you know what you want. You don't exactly know where to get it, or you don't exactly know what sizes fit you similarly. I don't really know if Zara and Forever 21 have similar cuts. And so then there could be some interesting potential advising services we can do at some point, right? When we understand where you like to shop and your buying behavior, we may actually be able to help you in like a, a personalized shopper way. But again, that is, that's a pipe dream for us today. It's something we feel passionate that we may be able to assist in. And 
We're going to let users decide if that's something they want. I think that's super interesting because if you can look at the other, the payment methods that are out there, they are more, like you said, tied to that merchant and that specific web page. Whereas if Sleek takes more of that consumer angle, owns that relationship with the consumer, it could be almost a, an extension of how that consumer spends, where they spend, how they spend. So I guess a little bit of that pipe dream, like how do you see that playing out? Because from when I think about that, I think that is a much bigger play than just that partner with the merchant and the extension of services that could come off that. So how do you think about that vision? What's realistic in the short term and, and maybe what's some like long-term ideas? Yeah, in the short term, the backbone of this business is seamless checkout, right? That's the promise we're making to consumers. And like you've alluded to, we are serving consumers. That is what's critical. That's what enables us to have a different potential than a lot of these checkout platforms and go in different directions. So we want to maintain that promise of seamless checkout and that's something we care about a lot. So that is really where our focus lies. Now, a lot of these grand ambitions and these idealistic ideas, that's something we're excited to explore in time. But I think the critical thing is because we're not embedded, because we're serving consumers, we have these opportunities. So again, another opportunity is, you know, buy now, pay later is only available. Klarna is only available on certain sites. Sizzle is only available on certain sites because it's an embedding process. They run into a distribution problem because one store isn't going to have five buy now, pay later solutions. With Sleek, if we truly build what we're talking about building and serving the consumer everywhere, great. Then we can partner with the BNPL or design our own BNPL and be able to provide that directly to consumers, have that relationship with the consumer, and then ultimately work with brands to make that a reality. So I think whether it's a BNPL product within Sleek, whether it's this really customized personal shopping experience, whether it's a multitude of other e-com tools and possible solutions, the critical thing is that we have that seamless checkout built in for consumers that does not require embedding because that is a fundamentally different way. Like it's first principles, different approach on how e-com tools work today. And we believe if we do that, we can unlock so many potential avenues. And I guess from like a browser perspective, we've talked about some of the advantages of browser and that relationship with consumer. What, what are some challenges with building a browser? Is it more difficult? Are you built, you're building on Safari, you're building on Chrome, which could be always shifting. What are some of the, the challenges or hard parts about building a, a browser extension? Yeah, I think building a browser extension at the most basic level doesn't need to be complicated. You can build pretty basic extensions. I think what gets really complicated is for us, we're interacting with these checkout flows that exist on sites. So in a lot of ways, what we're doing is we're building a semantic engine. So it's like a human would do checkout, but a robot has to do it. Now, as a human, you can look through and say first name. Okay, that's pretty easy. But on the back end, that can be quite complicated. And again, it's not so much that there's just first name on this one site and first name on another site. On the back end, they may look spectacularly different, all these different fields. So to teach a computer how to understand this is not something that's done easily. And again, this semantic engine, that is something that we really feel provides us the ability to do some amazing things in the future. And again, if you just think about someone like Tesla, for instance, their cars are not self-driving today, but the whole time they've been collecting data on self-driving, right? They're trying to understand driving behavior. They're trying to understand how to build that up using real people behavior. 
And in a lot of ways, that's what we hope Sleek can do. We're going to we're gonna try to assist you with all these checkouts. We're going to try to get really smart at doing these checkouts for you. And again, we're building up our understanding of how checkout works so that we can ultimately perfect it and do it for you everywhere without you know any real hands-on experience. And, and I guess I, for one, just being technology forward and already using ShopPay and many of these tools, I have that trust factor there. Do you see that as a hurdle to for like mass market adoption is like, oh, my information is stored with this extension and I'm worried about security with my financial data. How do you go making consumers feel safe with that? And how do you think about security from a payment perspective? Yeah, again, Palmer's background was in Microsoft. So he learned the absolute most secure possible building possible. So he, everything is very encrypted. We have dual encryption. We have You have your PIN you provide. But one thing we do that's really important, and again, this is maybe a little bit of inside baseball, but we do not hold your credit card information. You hold your credit card information. So store it on your local device. We don't have it in like a cloud database. We don't access it. We like to say, you don't know your CVV, neither do I. So it's really about trying to make sure that a user is safe and empowered at all points. And another interesting thing is, again, we do not actually process the payment. So we're taking your information, we're directly putting it into a checkout flow, right? So unlike maybe Stripe, where they actually have to process the payment, we are not doing that. We are not connecting an intermediary between a store and your Visa card. We are just inputting your Visa card into the store's guest checkout flow. So if they have a secure checkout, we are providing a secure checkout, right? It's up to the merchant security levels. And typically those are pretty secure. And again, on top of that, we provide some extra layers of security. So it is a little safer than your typical checkout flow. Okay. No, that makes sense. From like a, a merchant perspective, you mentioned some partnerships there. How do you go about acquiring these new merchants? How do you go about setting yourself apart? Or are you just an auxiliary feature that like adds value to their existing checkout? How have those conversations been with merchants? Yeah, I simply put, they've gone pretty well. We've partnered with over 1,500 brands, including some of the world's biggest in just over a year. And the reason for that, for this massive distribution network that we've established is the brands know the problem on their side. They understand that around only 30% of the time, people actually check out when they've added items to their cart. And there's a multitude of reasons for this, but some of the top reasons are all the friction. You get the checkout. Maybe I don't really feel like making a guest profile, like doing doing a account creation. You know, or maybe I don't want to do guest checkout and put in 23 different fields of information. Or maybe my credit card's in the other room. So I can't even do this checkout right now. Like I have to get up to get it and I don't want to do that. So there's all these reasons why a user doesn't make checkout happen and it, it's, it leads to high card abandonment. So brands know that problem. The thing that they don't want to do is they don't want to embed a solution because embedding a solution requires getting your engineers involved. It requires getting your legal compliance team involved. And even more than that, it involves giving up real estate on your checkout. So checkout has enough things going on. It's complicated enough. When you first get to a card page, you don't need to have now 10 extra buttons there, right? You don't need to have all these different checkout solutions and Apple Pay and Amazon Pay and then five more BNPL products. Like that just creates such havoc at your current page that now you're even more likely to abandon it. So having something that's really seamless, that it, it isn't taking up real estate, it isn't taking up your engineer's time, it isn't taking up your legal compliance team time. They're excited by that. Like they want to tackle card conversion. They want you to check out more than anybody else. It's just the thing is they don't know how to make that a reality and make that happen without a lot of resources. And with Sleek, they don't need those resources. It can be a much more seamless process. And just to put it in perspective, like uh, this is a, a little bit of an anecdote, but MasterPass 
which is MasterCard was trying to do like an embeddable checkout solution. They were offering merchants in Canada, like a million dollars a year, big merchants to have that button be embedded on their site, just to try to get user adoption and try to actually get the ball rolling. They were willing to take those huge losses for us, those same merchants, we can have a 15, 20 minute phone call with them. And they're like, yep, let's do this. There's no lift required from us. Let's absolutely go for this. So it's just a completely different sales cycle. And obviously that lets us have this amazing distribution where we are able to provide checkout at Walmart, Best Buy, Macy's, Canadian Tire, Sportcheck, some of these fantastic clothing stores and, and otherwise. So Uplift, a lot easier compared to competitors. Completely agree with that kind of NASCAR logo. If you go on some websites with different options, how, how do you go about monetizing Sleek? Like where are you looking to monetize it more on consumer side, merchant side? How are you thinking about monetization? Yeah, so it's absolutely free for consumers. And even in fact, we actually provide cash back at where we're partnered. So you're actually going to get cash back at almost all of our 1500 retailers. The way it works is we get a commission from a merchant for helping you complete your transaction. So again, there's only a 30% chance that you actually do the transaction. If we can increase that to 50 or 60%, that's worth quite a deal. That's worth a lot of money to these merchants. So they're providing us a commission and we pass on the vast majority of that commission to the user as cashback. So again, we actually don't charge anything of the user. It's not about like selling data or anything like that. It's really about this commission structure or we're going to get some commission from your merchant and we're going to pass it back to you, the end user. So with that, that uplift you mentioned there, so with the 30%, is that individuals that would be coming to a checkout page and then ultimately there's a 70% drop-off? Yeah, that's exactly right. When 30% of people, like when someone adds an item to their cart and they go to the cart, they're actually only 30% likely to check out. Now, obviously there's a certain amount of those people that they just wanted to see the price. Maybe they wanted to see the shipping information. Granted, there's a lot of people that no matter what we do, you could offer the product for free. They're not doing it. But there's just the reality that there's some of that 70% of people that will not check out. But there's a great deal of them that are not checking out because of the friction at checkout. And they just don't want to do it right now. And their credit card's in the other room and they're on the couch and a million other reasons, right? So these friction points, these are points that can be solved. They're not unknown. It's just the best implementation to solve them hasn't yet been created. And we believe we're creating that. I, I did not know it was that low and that is pretty shocking. And, and also like with some of the brands that you're working with, if it is 30% and you can even get it to 31, 32, like you're talking millions of dollars. Sure. Yeah. And again, for us, we're serving it on an individual basis, right? So Evan, if you're a sleek user, you'll be, let's say maybe 60% likely to check out if you actually add items to your cart at Walmart. But again, we need like how many millions of users does Walmart have? How many millions of users do we need to get and have them doing it at Walmart? So that's the intricacy of our business. That's what takes time. And of course, you're absolutely right. If we can increase that cart conversion for millions of users at Walmart, that's going to get them very excited. I guess from the, maybe before we get to the quick fire round, what, what, what are you most looking forward to with Sleek? What are some plans for this remaining part of the year looking into next year? What's got you most excited? Yeah, we're, we are available in the Chrome store, but it's very early days. We're starting to really do a bigger launch and really start pushing and trying to acquire users. So that's what's really starting to begin now. And again, that's backed by our seamless checkout technology being increasingly available at these stores. So we're really excited for that. That's what the rest of the Q quarter four and quarter three, I guess, whatever's left of Q3, that gets us motivated is really continuing to talk to users, continuing to add users and continuing to build 
this unbelievable checkout experience at more and more stores. So we don't serve seamless checkouts to you today at 1500 stores. It's a lot less than that. So we hope to continue expanding that into the hundreds to thousands and really start having that coverage that we, we dream about. Super exciting. And I guess we could jump into this kind of quick fire round to finish things off. There's something new I've added to this season based off feedback from last season. With first question there, what is the best book you have read this year or just within your lifetime? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a, a fiction one and a non-fiction one. So the fiction one, I really like Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. It's a, a great book. I'm not even going to go into the details. It's just a fantastic novel. And then another one is Red Notice by Bill Browden. So that's a, a nonfiction book. And it, it's really interesting just talking about capital markets in Russia and stuff like that. And, and especially at the fall of the, of the, you know, the Berlin Wall and, and the opportunities that were created in the early 90s in Russia. So fascinating book. Yeah, that's on my list, my Amazon list there. What are you most personally excited about for this year or go going into 2023? Yeah, personally, I've started stuff in the past. I've started fintech companies in the past, but nothing quite at this scale and nothing with this quite of uh, desire, you know, and ambition. So I think personally, I'm really excited to just continue working on this. I work with a great team. I, I really like, I'm thrilled to get up every day and have a call from my co-founders, the employees we work with, different merchants we work with. It's, it's fun. Like I actually really enjoy what I'm doing and I love meeting all these people and talking with them. So Personally, I'm just really excited to continue this journey and continue growing within this role. How do you deal with hard times? With being a founder is, is a difficult choice and it's a grind sometimes. How do you personally deal with those hard moments? Yeah, everyone loves to be like, oh, you just got to push through them. And like the, these kind of generic advice. And I, I think a lot of it is really talking to people that have done it, but also people that haven't done it. There's nothing better when you're in a tough time. It's just going for a walk with a friend or a sibling or an advisor and just talking about life. Like it doesn't need to be all about sleek or all about our go-to-market strategy all the time. That's just, you need to take a break. And sometimes you need to just talk to people about their life and their world and lean on your friends and family. And I think that leaning on others when you're in trouble is really, that's what allows you to get through things. And that's having important friends and family is really critical. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I think having family members or friends that are outside of that startup hustle and grind gives the brain a little bit of relaxation <laughs> and you, it can ultimately increase creativity too, because you're talking about something different, which can unlock some new ideas. So Absolutely. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Most people aren't in this world. Most people are not trying to become like involved in the startup game. So it's nice. It's refreshing to talk to other people at the same time. Sometimes you really need advice from someone who understands your business or understands startups. And it's great to have those folks you can rely on as well. Perfect. Daniel, it's, it's been a pleasure doing this recording today, learning more about Sleek, learning about the space, and greatly appreciate your time. Thank you, Evan. It's been awesome being on here. I, I've really enjoyed the forum, and thank you for asking such great questions and inviting me on today. It's awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.